Hi, it's Grace Cowan, and this is Frogmore Stew. Put my horn, yeah. Yeah, my horn belongs to South Carolina. This is a partner podcast to go with the interview that I recently did with Mac DeFord. In the interview, we talk a bit about the Voting Rights Act, which is not being used in the South Carolina District 1 case, but it is very important to understand because there are so many gerrymandering cases happening around the country right now. I wanted to make sure we gave it some context. In 1965, the entire country, for the most part, knew that things were not going well for Black Americans living in the South. But other than those directly involved in the civil rights movement, not a lot was being done about it. There were countless stories written and told about black voters being denied the right to vote, told they'd gotten the date, the time, or the polling place wrong, or that they'd filled out an application incorrectly. The list went on and on at the crafty ways that kept black voters from voting. That had been a norm in a lot of the South, and those schemes effectively undermined or eliminated the political power of Black communities, even when they were a majority of the population. But then Selma, Alabama happened. Television screens showed firsthand the brutality and horror that Black Americans were experiencing in the South. Selma had a population that had majority of Black voters, but the voting rolls were 99% white. On March 7, 1965, protesters were set to march from Selma to Montgomery. They were met on the Edmund Pettus Bridge by Alabama state troopers who attacked them with nightsticks and tear gas. But this time, there were television cameras. To be detrimental to your safety, to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, this march will not continue. Troopers here advanced toward the group. You saw these men putting on their gas masks. And behind the state troopers, a group of men, part of the sheriff posse on horses, they came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses, and releasing the takers. Was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. John Lewis suffered a fractured skull. Including Lewis, 17 marchers were hospitalized and roughly 100 wounded in all. That evening, Network news channels broadcast footage of what came to be known as Bloody Sunday. I can't believe the news today. Oh, I can't close my eyes and make it go Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. The president at the time, Lyndon B. Johnson and most of America were absolutely horrified at the scenes coming into their living rooms. The president implored Congress to do something. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. But really, it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice and we shall overcome. And they actually did. They passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and this law ensured that states followed the 15th Amendment's guarantee that the right to vote not be denied because of race. 
That law fundamentally opens political opportunities for all communities to participate in all aspects of the political system on an equal basis. Section 2 of the law allowed people to sue, either on their own behalf or with the assistance of the Justice Department, to undo existing laws and procedures that denied equal opportunity to voters to elect their candidates of choice. And Section 5 of the law required federal supervision and approval of any changes to voting laws in districts that had previously used tests to determine voter eligibility. And that requirement in Section 5 is called preclearance. That's a term to remember. There were 10 states that required preclearance, including South Carolina. The 15th Amendment states that the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But until the passage of the Voting Rights Act, those words meant nothing. Section 5 was not the first response to the problem, but it was the first effective one. A year later, 1966, after the VRA was passed, of course, a South Carolina case. South Carolina versus Katzenbach challenging the new law. Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote for that case that the burden of proof was shifted to the perpetrators, who now had to show that a voting change was not discriminatory before putting it into effect. He was basically saying that if states wanted to make a new rule around voting, they had to prove that it wasn't meant to keep people from voting, rather than changing the rules and making voters prove that it was discriminatory. The Voting Rights Act worked, and in the years after its passage, the disparity in registration rates between white and black voters dropped substantially. And based on its success, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized multiple times with members of both parties supporting it. All four congressional reauthorizations of the Voting Rights Act were signed by Republican presidents. But throughout the years, those places under the government's supervision were never happy about it. And so many attempts were made to undo the oversight, but it wasn't until 2013 that the courts agreed. Shelby versus Holder. Shelby County, Alabama sued the Attorney General under the Obama administration, Eric Holder. The lawsuit was backed by big dollar donors and operatives in the conservative movement, along with Republican attorneys general in several states. Shelby County's brief claimed that Section 5's federalism's cost was too great, basically saying that they didn't like the federal government involved in their state's business and that the statute had accomplished its mission. Shelby County argued that the requirements were excessive and unnecessary 50 years after the legislation's passage. In that 2013 decision, the Supreme Court, in a partisan vote and led by current Chief Justice John Roberts, agreed with Shelby County, and they invalidated the part that specified the locations that required permission from the federal government to make changes to their voting laws. Remember the word preclearance. The court's conservative majority ruled that the government was using an outdated and unconstitutional process to determine preclearance, to lay out which states were required to have their voting rules approved by the government. Chief Justice Roberts said in his court decision that racial disparity in the 1965 voting numbers was compelling evidence justifying preclearance then. But he wrote that there was no longer such a disparity. He basically said that racial disparities do not exist any longer in voting because there aren't poll taxes and literacy tests. His legal analysis boiled down to the fact that preclearance was effective in reversing disenfranchisement in 1965, but that the country no longer needs it. 
It was Section 5, though, that actually made that law have teeth. In the absence of preclearance requirements, civil rights groups have needed to rely more on lawsuits under Section 2 to combat discrimination in the political system. But that is currently in the court system with attempts to undo it as well. The court, however, is not the final say on the matter. And frankly, the Voting Rights Act was not meant to last forever. Congress has specific authority under the 15th Amendment to craft necessary legislation to safeguard the right to vote for all of us. I'll leave you with this from Justice Ketanji Jackson. Deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. That's all the stew for today. Talk to you next week. War Stew Podcast with Grace Cowan is produced and directed by TJ Phillips with the Podcast Solutions Network.